We got our first thousand customers in the first six months. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how this brand reached seven figures in their first year by doing things that did not scale. How to do market research by talking to sales associates at retail stores and how your average order value affects your advertising strategy. Today I'm joined by Paul Hedrick from Tacovas. Tacovas makes beautiful, top-quality Western boots and accessories by hand and sells them directly at honest prices. It was started in 2015 and based out of Austin, Texas. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Felix. Yeah, so is this your first uh, business that you started or like give us a little background about, about your entrepreneurial journey so far? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it is my first business, <laughs> uh, which has been fun. Uh, my background, I would say I took the non-traditional route um, to being a boot salesman, so to speak, but um, not sure if there is a traditional route. But uh, So I grew up in Texas, went to college in the Northeast, came back to Texas, did management consulting for a while, um, and then actually worked in finance after that, um, kind of investing and operating in retail and consumer concepts. So it was really there that I was um, drawn into the world of consumer and the world of brands and uh, really my desire uh, to start a brand and to run a brand. Um, that became pretty clear to me. It was an itch I needed to scratch when I was there. Yeah, so you, you like you mentioned, this is not a traditional path for her boot salesman, but it, it sounds very similar to a lot of what I hear about other entrepreneurs where they go into the corporate world, maybe in consulting and finance, like yeah. you mentioned, and then have this kind of uh, itch that they want to scratch. What, 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 what experience led you to uh, look into or led you to discover your desire to learn more about building a brand? Yeah, it's, I, I, so I've always loved brands. Uh, I'm, I've always been kind of a, a gearhead um, you know, would get car magazines and um, kind of you know read Men's Journal and and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, I've enjoyed being a consumer, <laughs> I guess, uh, maybe more than most. And but really, it was when I got into the work world, especially my last position, when it was our job to really stay on top of all all of the retail concepts that were out there, what was being built, what was kind of in the early stage, what was in the middle market stage, uh, where was retail headed, and just seeing how excited that made me. And I think it's because you can touch, feel, um, uh, you know, wear, eat uh, these, you know, consumer products and all of those things I felt much more naturally drawn to like many others are, but um, truly excited me in the business world. And I, you know, for a while I thought I wanted to start a restaurant and eventually just realized it needed to be something consumer product related for me to get really excited. Mm, so we just we're just talking before we hit record about this being your three year anniversary. And three years ago, where was retail headed? Like, what what did you see in the the landscape that you recognize there's an opportunity? Yeah. So yeah, four years ago was when I was still at my last job. Um, I think you know, call it early 2014 was the time frame to set the stage. And it had gotten to the point. You know, I was working in private equity, and we had not. It hadn't there was a lot of direct to consumer brands, a lot of digitally native brands that seemed to be you know, disrupting, not to use what maybe is an overused word, um, other retail categories. But at the same time, none of them are really quite mature enough for, you know, major firms to be investing in. And that was a signal to me that 
there was kind of a wave that was coming and it didn't seem, I, I felt like it was one that was going to continue to come and, and direct brand specifically was a, uh, to me as a consumer had a lot of value propositions that I think were strong. And, you know, from a business perspective, if you were going to start a brand from scratch, you'd be, you know, we, it would probably be prudent to, to focus on a direct channel. And that theme in general is what led me to think a lot about what I would do with a brand if I had one or if I had started one. And, uh, you know, it's clear that retail has continued to move in that direction. Uh, I, I quit my job four years ago, moved to Austin. I was living in Manhattan at the time. And, uh, yeah, I, I picked a category in the process, which was also, a, a, you know, a fun uh, thing, a fun process to go through. <laughs> Yeah, is that is that a good leading indicator to see where the retail opportunity is to look at where investors are investing? Is that something you would do today? Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it to be you know, truth be told, the world of startups, um, you know, some some industries move faster than others. Uh, a lot of startups, I think, may not be indicative of greater trends. But uh, when you think about uh, wanting to start businesses that end up being maybe category leaders or larger businesses, call it, you know, seven, eight, nine figure businesses or more, then yeah, I think it's prudent to look at, you know, larger company trends, middle market trends. I was just happened to be a bit lucky in that I was sitting in the seat of being able to see a lot of companies out there and seeing a lot of private data, um, you know, and, you know, not utilizing it the wrong way, but really just being, you know, understanding which companies were growing really quickly and what were they doing well. And I think that is, you know, if you look at com- what companies are doing well, yeah, that is always going to be a great rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. So direct-to-consumer, is that still the big opportunity that, that is in retail or based on what you've seen, based on your experience in the industry now, what do you believe is the next big opportunity for anyone out there that is just looking around? It is a big opportunity. Uh, but to be clear, I think people misinterpreted, uh, maybe really over the last few years, it's been easily misinterpreted that direct-to-consumer means internet only, uh, cut out the middleman, so to speak, you know, higher quality goods for lower price, uh, because you're cutting out maybe the wholesale supply chain that that's all well and good. But the truth is, uh, the future of retail is omni-channel. Uh, the future of retail is people being connected to brands that make great products and deliver great customer experiences. And I don't think those are the tenants that matter. And I think that the direct to consumer, business model, so to speak, is a great one to, it adds value to both of those elements. It generally adds value to making great products at great value because you you can theoretically bypass other people that would have taken margin in the past. And then you can also great, create great customer experiences because everyone who is buying into a retailer that is selling you to you direct is buying into the same company that's many times designing it, making it, selling it, distributing it, uh, doing post-purchase customer service. And so they're, they're the hub that has all the answers. They've designed the entire experience from soup to nuts, which means that it tends not to be as disparate or broken. And I think for all those reasons, yes, direct-to-consumer is a great business model, but it shouldn't be confused with you know, online-only um, uh, or what have you. Because the truth is, I think that omni-channel will be how the world settles, uh, I mean, even today, 85 plus percent of you know retail sales are offline, and uh, as you can see, a lot of the original kind of clicks to bricks uh, 
brands, so to speak, the people that started direct to consumer online only are now moving direct to consumer retail. And I, I think that's a trend that will continue for sure. Uh, us are, you know, we ourselves are planning to open our first retail store in early 2019. So it's definitely one that we're bought into at Tecovis. Yeah. So this is like, you're talking about basically the entire stack, like managing that entire from the, from production to distribution, to selling online to selling on selling in your own retail store as well. This is something that it seems like a much, much larger undertaking, right? Than just starting your own retail store and then kind of plugging it in from, you know, partnering with vendors to do the rest of it. It's a very large undertaking. <laughs> right. Is it, did this, did this take as long as you had expected when you first started out or did it move faster than you expected? I would say that our, you know, Tecovas as a business has moved much more quickly than we had anticipated. And I think that's another trend that we've seen is that it's been uh, more than ever before retail brands have been able to establish themselves and from, you know, zero to seven figures to eight figures, maybe more quickly and with less capital than ever before, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and it's it's beautiful in one way because it lets you really without a lot of infrastructure and, you know, fixed costs, uh, establish a, you know, brand that thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people have already bought into without ever really having to invest in any real CapEx like stores or major tech infrastructure. Um, but the truth is the reason that people are opening retail stores is because the value will always be there in physical retail. Uh, even if it's, if it's there in different ways, it's not going to be, you know, traditional BC malls, it's going to be high street, it's going to be, um, you know, a locations, urban locations. Um, and the beauty about opening stores later is that even though it takes, it does take, it is an undertaking, it takes a lot of money and time is that you're building and opening those stores to a built in audience. And that's why it's working well, I think, but Mm -hmm. no, I think it's very prudent to start online first and to, and to be extremely stingy with your capital and investments early on, because you can get a much more scale uh, on the dollar than you could, you know, call it 20 years ago. Right. So you're basically saying that there's a timing to it. You can eventually go omni-channel, but you don't want to necessarily start that way, uh, especially if you're just, you know, bootstrapping, you're starting off on your own before you have much to, to much capital to, to invest. So when you were getting started and you guys decided, or you decided to start this business, where did you kind of focus your attention first? Like, where did you see that you could bring the most value to the marketplace? Yeah, it's funny. I might contradict myself here because I mean, building stores and real stores and stores that in great locations that, that serve a lot of people that are high volume, those are hard to do and they take a lot of money. But man, I'll tell you, to answer your last question, offline is where we spent a lot of our time in the early months and you know first year. Uh, and that's maybe a little counterintuitive, but I, I strongly believe in doing things that don't scale in addition to things that could scale. Uh, because what tends to happen with the, with the strategies that do scale, let's say you wanted to get really good at digital marketing, social media, paid social media, customer acquisition, search marketing. Those are all things that great e-commerce companies are going to do well for the most part. Um, but those are also things that are pretty hard to do at first when you're starting from zero. So to go from zero to one, so to speak, and, you know, if it's that if that one means your first customer, your first hundred or your first thousand, um, a lot of times you got to do things that don't scale. And so we actually, you know, I started the company 
uh, by myself, which was you know a long and, and interesting journey, but uh, brought someone on pretty early, and he and I committed to two or three times a week we would go to trunk shows. I you know I, I traded in my pretty nice car for an old you know twenty year old SUV, and we would fit fifty or sixty pairs of cowboy boots in there and go to a conference or a Christmas market or a uh, a farmer's market even sometimes we've tried and we would just hawk stuff in person. And, and the beauty of that was we would learn, you know, from our customers, uh, we would talk to them. We would hear what they like, what they didn't like, uh, what they thought was be interesting as a sales model. And, and we would learn from that, but more importantly, honestly, it paid the bills. You know, your, your, your overhead isn't very high early on, but it's actually easier to go out and sell a great physical product many times on the street than it is to, you know, pay for that first customer only through online channels. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem, but I think a nice balance of being kind of scrappy, hustling and doing physical events early on with testing those initial dollars into the market if you want to do digital advertising is a healthy way to start. It's certainly something that we learned a lot from, and I'm not sure we would be where we were today, where we are today if we hadn't done that. How long would you say that you were doing things like this, that like going to trunk shows, like doing things that didn't scale before you recognized that, okay, we can now start building a system that, that, that scales, a marketing system, a sales system that scales? Yeah, I would, it took a pretty long time. I would say most of our first year, we were we were pretty much saying yes to everything. It really, it, you start to it's when you start to feel like you need to say no to stuff that I think it's okay to start saying no. And when when that happens, it's typically because a trade off on your time uh, and your dollar combined uh, becomes pretty clear. You know, it's better spent on something else. And for us, particularly. We kept a really lean team. I mean, we, we didn't even hire our, our third person on the team until I think our yeah our first anniversary. So first whole year, just a two-man team, and we got seven figures, and it was great. Um, and we did that through a lot of things that didn't scale. Uh, and it wasn't until the second year when we really started to get, you know, we, wanted, we, we decided to make it a strength of ours to become good at paid social media advertising and some search marketing. And uh, I think when we were spending kind of in the maybe first entering the five figures a month of spend that, you know, going to an event that was going to earn us 1000, 2000, $3,000 started to become a bigger trade off on our time. I think to just answer it tactically. (laughs) Yeah. So seven figures in your first year, two man team doing things that didn't scale. What were some of the, the kind of high leverage things that you were doing? I I can't imagine not this all came from trunk shows, right? Like what were you doing to get this to the seven figures? Uh, a lot of it did, to be honest, but uh, a lot of it came from those customers, right? Because we would meet customers in person, and those customers would always tend to be the best customers. They would talk about us the most, so best word of mouth and also best dollar customers themselves. Um, and, uh, I mean, we, I mean, shoot, we would go to events that would, you know, we would earn thousands of dollars in revenue at these, some of these events. Uh, because the truth is, our product sells very well in person. Uh, it's a very high quality, kind of a high price point. You know, our average price point today is around three hundred dollars um, in a market of products you know, that we compare to in the five hundred to a thousand dollar range. So, um, relatively high end and uh, good physical purchase experience. So, to be clear, that was a pretty big part of it. But we did start to spend a little money online, and we also were able to get 
a little bit of launch press and I would say kind of a healthy mix of uh, almost every channel that you can consider testing in your first year, but none of them honestly were, were that big in themselves. It was kind of a, the sum of the parts uh, was really the story. I remember doing our first kind of last 12 months breakdown of revenue by channel and by attribution. And it was pretty, pretty even, um, you know, organic, inorganic, uh, you know, paid social was just starting. I think by the, by the end of 2016 was really our first calendar year, first full year. I think we had maybe just started to spend about five figures a month on Facebook. So that was, you know, that was returning good capital for us early on because we were very prudent about becoming, we wanted that to be a core competency of ours. So, you know, we were, we were, <laughs> hyper-focused on efficiency and building Excel models and daily tracking budget and campaigns and A-B testing. And even with really compared to today, pretty small levels of spend, you know, if it was in the hundreds, we would still be doing everything that today we would do with campaigns well above that. And building that discipline early on, I think is the way that you um, can kind of ride that train a little bit. Got it. So the, the sales that you're, the revenue that you're generating offline going through these trunk shows and everything, were you able to transition a lot of any of that data online when you started doing things like running ads and trying to build like lookalike audience or anything like that? Or did you just almost start yeah. over again when you came online? No, it was all luckily part of the same system. I mean, we've been on Shopify since day one and they we used POS. Um, so it was all going to our store. You know, we were tracking emails and we would try to capture addresses when we could. Um, regardless of if it were an in-person purchase. So we would, it, the, I think maybe it's worth clarifying that when we were doing these events, we were not selling the, the inventory physically in person. We would, because we're, we're in the footwear business and there's a lot of uh, stocking units, a lot of SKUs in the footwear business. <laughs> We've, we, we currently have 30 sizes for every men's style. For instance, we've got 15 number sizes and two widths. So, um, we would actually just carry a kind of fit run uh, to these events. So customers would need to get the boots shipped to them anyway if they were purchasing. Uh, so we were capturing pretty much all the same data of, on the customer side that you would capture through a you know traditional online store sale. And then, so yeah, we were able to, we were able to gather, gather all you know, our first 1,000 customers. We were able to upload uh, to a lookalike list and, uh, kind of get the party started from there, which luckily happened pretty early. I think we had our first thousand customers in the first six months or so. Is that when it started getting real or did that happen earlier where you're like, wow, this could actually become a, a huge business? Like when did you start, when did you guys start recognizing that? You know, I think we've raised our bar a little bit over time, every quarter, every year. Um, I definitely, I started the company realizing that it was a large category. I think what's interesting that people don't realize about the cowboy boot business is that it's it's actually a $4 billion uh, U.S. retail category, uh, cowboy boots. So um, pretty big. Uh, you don't need to capture a huge part of that market to have a pretty sizable company. So, you know, the bar uh, was relatively low in terms of market penetration for it to be a nice business. Uh, so yeah, I think the expectations were always fairly high. I wouldn't say that we had a number in mind for how big we wanted to be or at what point was it, would it be you know, real quote unquote. Um, but uh, we knew that hitting seven figures in our first year would be a really good marker. Um, and 
you know, I think I probably individually took it for granted a little bit. I, I think I, in some ways we got lucky in that the category that I picked, you know, and the product I designed turned out to have really good product, product market fit early on. And I would say that was equal parts luck and skill because, um, could have just as easily picked a market that was much more difficult to create a product that would resonate in the market. And therefore I think I took some of our early sales success a little bit for granted, but you know, not, not for the sake of a lot of hard work. I mean, it was hard to design our product line and bring it to life. It took over a year. Um, so we were happy. I would say it was a healthy mix of gratitude and, and a little bit, not, you know, naivety, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how hard it was to get to seven figures. Cause I, it was, you know, I'd never tried and failed. And, um, I think it was a nice marker for us to say, okay, if we can do that soon, then it can be big. But to be clear, there's plenty of brands out there that have grown faster than we have. Um, just, I think maybe the difference between us and some of those other, you know, maybe pretty well-known rapidly growing brands is that many of those brands raised a lot of capital along the way, a lot more than we have. And I think we always, you know, I always wanted the business to be, you know, to have some optionality. I wanted it to be customer focused. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to grow just as big as our customers would let us grow uh, without sacrificing quality or customer service. And as long as neither of those are, are, are compromised, then we'll, we'll keep building and we'll keep making stuff and selling it. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the the whole product market fit thing certainly greases the wheels, and we can't discuss exact numbers. But you certainly probably built one of the largest or fastest growing consumer brands that I've had on the on this show. So you've certainly done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did eight figures in our second year. So yeah, it's definitely a, a realm to 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 that, that a lot of people aim to achieve, but it's certainly really hard to get into. Maybe, maybe even improbable in a lot of cases unless you have this product market fit that you're talking about. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Like, wh- what is product market? Fit? Well, actually, before we get into it, what is it like? How would you describe your product market fit for your brand? Yeah, sure. Um, so we, uh, yeah, the, the world of cowboy boots is one that is um, pretty fragmented. Uh, and fragmented in both um, retail distribution in terms of, you know, there aren't that many huge companies. It's a $4 billion market, but there are no billion-dollar companies, to give you a sense, whereas there are many other markets out there, categories out there that have one player that, you know, takes the majority of the market. Not the case for cowboy boots, uh, but on the on the style and kind of product side, there's a pretty big range between low-end and high-end, with a lot of low-end brands going as low as $50 and high-end brands going as high as the thousands. Um, but, you know, on average, the average cowboy boot is probably $150 to $250. And there are some higher-end brands that are really more like 500 to 1,000. And those are the ones that I liked. And those are the ones that I think most of the market would like if you know they could afford it. And so our value proposition at the beginning was very simple. It was, let's make those 500 to $1,000 boots more affordable by using the same quality uh, supply chain or better, same quality materials, construction, comfort, uh, all together and sell them for 200 to $400. That was kind of the original and, and the idea and the product market fit was that stylistically, a lot of boots out there were, it, there's not a lot of transparency in how to, how to select them. If you go to a boot store, you'll walk in and you might be overwhelmed if you're a first time boot buyer, cause they actually store the inventory on the floor, kind of like a grocery shelf. I mean, you're walking through the inventory aisles, essentially, 
um, and they're grouped by size. So you, you'll be walking down the size 10 aisle and there'll be hundreds, if not thousands of boots that are all different with no explanations around, you know, what, what is high quality, what's low quality. I mean, you see the different prices, but there's no, there's a lot of different toe shapes, heel styles, heights, colors, different types of animal hides used. And, uh, our goal is to distill everything down to simplicity, to create a simple classic, um, high quality, universally appealing, high, you know, high quality, but little bit affordably priced boot. And all of those things, it seemed obvious to me that people would like those things. And so we made a boot that, you know, we made a product line that was simple. It only had two styles for men, two styles for women. And that was a hypothesis. These are the boots that I would want to wear. And I suspected that a big part, if not a majority of the market would also want to wear them. And we, yeah, we, I think we were lucky in that we were mostly right. Yeah. So obviously not easy, but the formula that you're laying out, it seems quite simple where you're making a product at a better value, you know, an expensive product at a more affordable price. And you also demystify the buying process. You're educating the consumer on how to make a, a smart decision on, on purchasing. So I want to talk about that first part, which is about creating a more a product with more value than what's out there already. And you mentioned that the key to that for you was same or better quality construction and materials and the focus on a better supply chain. Do you have experience here? Like how do you even come in and say, hey, I can do this better than a company that has obviously veterans in, in supply chain management assuming? Yeah, great question. I, and truth is, I didn't know at first when I, when I quit my job, I didn't know, which maybe I should have figured out in hindsight. But luckily, uh, this was a product world that um, after doing some research, which was a lot of cold calling and Googling, <laughs> um, like any good entrepreneur would do, um, I uh, figured out that pretty much all of the world's high-end Western boots were made in uh, not only one town in Mexico, but really one street in one town, which is pretty crazy. And um, I just went there. And I went there knowing that I wanted to take the same strategy that many successful kind of newer digitally native brands had taken, which was let's not try to build a factory from the ground up or try to enter a really complex multi-step supply chain. Let, let's go to the experts. Let's go to the factories that are already making the best products in the world for the best brands and see if they'll work with us. And, you know, luckily there were four or five um, bootmaking partners, call them factories, but truly they're just, it's all handmade. It's all done by people. So really they're just, <laughs> you know, big clean buildings with a bunch of um, artisans in them. And, Anyway, I yeah, I convinced one of them to work with with me, and I I, I committed to spending a year uh, learning everything there was about putting a cowboy boot together and designing it piece by piece, and picking this you know the suppliers for each component piece by piece, and you know taking our time because unlike maybe tech companies, I knew that you know that maybe their their attitude is. Uh, you know, lean startup. It's it's you know, get something, get your V1 out there and ship it, um, and then iterate on it with feedback. You can't really do that with a physical product that people either wear or eat, for that matter. You know, you have to uh, you have to get it pretty close to you know, 100 percent. Maybe not 100, but you got to get to 90, 95 percent before you can bring it to market. So uh, I recognize that, and and you know, we leaned on 
uh, I leaned on a supply chain that was already doing all of this. And you know, what was going to be unique about us was going to be how it looked, putting all the components together, only using the best, which, you know, most brands try to cut corners at some point. And, you know, our goal was not to cut corners. And we were working with factories that would have loved for us to use all the best components because it makes their lives easier. And, and so that was, it kind of came together more easily, I would say, than um, you might expect with someone with no experience, but it's a very complex process. It's not something you can just, uh, you know, boot making is over 200 steps, almost all handmade, um, almost all done by, by someone's hand. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, luckily there are people out there that know how to do it <laughs> and we think we found the best. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's an interesting story about how you found the street that, that all these boots are being made on. I've heard a similar story from another, I think another goods brand where they found the same, uh, high luxury brands were all using the same manufacturers and they just went to them and got them to work with them. Yeah. It's a common thread. Yeah, but how do you, how do you, what's that conversation like? How do you convince them to work with you? Because I'm assuming that they obviously have a bigger client that, that, that you are essentially a competitor to, to them to some degree. Is it not a, an issue where you're coming in and say, hey, work with me as well, where you are basically a competitor? What's that process like with that conversation essentially? It's not an easy one, and you're right. That That is actually how many of the reactions go, I think. Um, for me personally, I came armed with a PowerPoint deck because I was a former consultant, and that's what I knew how to do. Um, I'm not sure I opened it. I, I think maybe we got to the first or second page. Um, but you know, I met with, uh, I think, three, and one of them said, no, we're, you know, we're working with a brand that is you know, pretty much directly competitive with what you're doing and we don't want it. We wouldn't want to upset them. Uh, one had minimums that were too high <laughs> and the third one, neither of those were true and they made great product and they had just, I think, uh, lost a client who had moved uh, production to a different city or something. I couldn't, I can't remember. And so had some capacity and, you know, they actually had already had a little experience with a couple brands that were internet focused and, um, we're familiar. I didn't take a lot of explaining and they were bought in early on. Uh, we've since moved on from that uh, factory. Um, we ended up going with the first one that said no to us <laughs> later on, uh, because they are, I, th- I would think they're the best. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't easy and it was a little bit of luck again. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like you were saying, unlike the tech industry, which has the luxury of adopting the lean startup approach where you're iterating all the time, you have to create something essentially is going to be very expensive to create for the first time and you can't just iterate on it that quickly. And you mentioned you took a year to, to do this, to, to learn, to piece it all together. How did you know that you put together the right product for, for the market? Was it just kind of a gamble or did you have a way to validate some of it along the way? Yeah, I, I was. I remember I've been asked this question before, and it's funny. I'm like, man, that would have been a good idea to actually <laughs> ask people and poll people. But um, no, I, I I didn't I didn't poll customers, so to speak. Um, but I what I did do was um, I went to pretty much every Western boot store that I could drive to, and I asked the head sales associate, every time I would go, I'd say, hey, point me to your best-selling men's boot. Point me to your best-selling women's boot. And invariably, uh, a lot of times they're, we're pointing me to the same style, but many times, you know, many different 
this is the stores carry different inventory um, or different styles, but there was always the common theme that it was almost always a high end brand, but one of the lower priced ones, call it like 450 to 550 price point of the highest end brands. Um, they were always a simple, classic design, a little round toe, brown leather, smooth leather, um, a boot that really could be viewed as universally appealing. Um, and that to me, that was my original hypothesis. And that was kind of just confirmatory for me that, okay, well, I, I, I sampled enough to think that I got a pretty good picture of the market. You know, I, I went to small and big stores. I went to urban and rural stores. Everyone's pointing in the same direction. Why is it so hard to find this boot? Let's go make it <laughs> and see if it sells. So it felt, yeah, it was a lot of gut, but, um, and I didn't know how to design a boot, but I knew what boot that I, I had a boot in my head that I would want to wear, you know, and I knew how to draw. I, I had, you know, taken a bunch of art classes. <laughs> and so this turned into a bit of my creative outlet for me, which was kind of fun. And it still is. I still draw all of our products, actually, um, which is a fun way to start. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about now the, the scaling of the advertising. Once you transition to that phase where you're going online and you mentioned that you started off, you know, five, maybe $10,000 a month to nearly a million a month in, in advertising spend over, over two years. And you mentioned that you were able to do this by being extremely results oriented as well. And I think that when people scale, they start taking this kind of shotgun approach where they're like, you know what, we're spending so much money. It doesn't matter as much. They start thinking of it as like a, a brand awareness thing. They don't think of the metrics or the kind of a cost per, you know, whatever action that they're, they're looking for. So what is your approach? How do you make sure that you're scaling without kind of losing sight of the, the numbers that really matter? Yeah, I think a lot of people out there, it's easy to jump to later years. And to be clear, we actually haven't, we're, we're, we're about six figures. We're not quite to that seven-figure monthly spend yet. Um, but we, uh, yeah, it took, we started with four and went to five and went to six. And and we wouldn't jump to the next level until we had built pretty rigorous processes. Um, I, you know, we were maybe unlike many startups that are willing to, you know, kind of lose a lot of money to get market share at, at first, you know, kind of invest in a, in the J curve, so to speak. We did not really want to do that because we didn't have a lot of money and uh, we weren't sure how much we could afford to lose because we weren't sure how big the company could get. So uh, we were very conservative at first and we would try to be profitable on first purchase. Um, and what we would do, our method was pretty simple early on. It was, let's find an audience uh, and a hypothesis, if it's creative or targeting otherwise, um, let's spend a little bit. It's going to be a little bit like throwing spaghetti at the wall, but then one of the pieces is going to stick and let's spend money on that audience then, or that, or that strategy, whatever it was uh, to generalize it. And we wouldn't move on to the next one until we felt like performance was starting to decline in that first one that we found. And so it was just kind of Vein by vein, we would be tapping them one by one, and we wouldn't increase our budget until we uh, had kind of built our process and our understanding of what was working previously, and brick by brick, we would establish. And I think that served us really well. I think we actually, I remember early on talking to someone who advised us, oh man, you got to just spend $50,000 like right off the bat you know, over the course of two months to learn anything because you're not going to get enough consumer data uh, to make good decisions on unless you spend that much. And that to me seemed 
uh, unhealthy. And it, it, now, now I know what's true about it. It has some truth to it. When you, you do learn a lot more about the market and what's going to work if you spend $50,000, but you don't have to. It's just a little harder to do it the other way, which is spend a little and take the time and take the rigor and apply the rigor to smaller numbers. And I think it's because when you're applying really kind of high level rigor to smaller numbers, sometimes it doesn't feel worth it. But you know, believe me, it was worth it for us. We learned a lot when we weren't spending a lot and we were able to apply all those lessons and continue to get better. So that the time we were spending a lot, we felt like we had learned along the entire way and we weren't just you know, driving a car without a steering wheel, which is what I think it would feel like if you jump straight to five or six figures, you know, spend numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this part about learning more about the market is important because I think a lot of people that are starting off will try Facebook ads, they run a test, it doesn't work, they get frustrated and then kind of just toss the entire thing away without looking for the nuggets or the data that they could gather from it. Yeah, you you need to be willing to test, and I think that's what you just mentioned is a great example of. That's um, a balance between being willing to test because you kind of do have to. Eat. Now, what was right about that spend fifty thousand dollar comment that I made was, eventually you have to be w- willing to spend that much because it might take a long time to learn a lot. Um, and what's important is that you really don't know what's going to work. <laughs> like. We had a lot of hypotheses early on that we thought were slam dunk. You know, let's target people who like ABC and who are in these geographies. And man, some of them worked really well and some of them did not work at all, even though we thought that they were just as good. So you do have to be willing to to learn and to lose a little bit every now and then. But I would challenge you. You don't have to lose a lot. You shouldn't. And anyone who tells you that you should second guess. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson that you, as an entrepreneur, you obviously need that confidence to move forward, but then you also need to be willing to be open to the data and not be kind of blinded by your beliefs necessarily, especially when it comes to running advertising. Yeah, you should be truth-seeking. Mm. Yeah. And just to drive this point home, like what are some, what, 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 can, you, can you think of like a, a, an ad that you guys ran that was surprising to you that it actually worked just like based on, you know, because you didn't expect it to work and all of a sudden it performed way better than you expected, like any kind of testing that you guys ran along those lines? Yeah, I, I can think of a couple, maybe two different examples. One, in these were early days, pretty simple, um, but stuff that are, is worthwhile testing for everyone. You know, we would test people who liked our competitors page. Um, and we wouldn't mention the competitor in the ads, obviously. That's, I'm not sure that's even legal, but we would just, you know, advertise to them because we thought that our product was, you know, similar and good. And those went okay, but actually I don't think a single one of our competitive kind of focused ads did really that much better than average. Uh, whereas every now and then we'd find this we would find this vein of like either a, a media publication um, when we that we either hadn't heard of or just didn't know a lot about when we dug into it, and we would get like three or four times the return on our investment on some of those media companies. And I, and I realized that it's because those companies have already so like they sometimes define demographic and messaging more clearly than a brand will uh, because they're they're writing content all the time. And so that was an early one that we thought was kind of cool was was a lot of times media companies are good uh, targets and you can learn from them and you can cross them with other audiences. So, yeah, a couple of tips and tricks. But the truth be told, it, there there's very little 
pattern. There's no secret sauce. There's no silver bullet. Like the very few of our lessons that we learned were easily translatable into other channels or other audiences. You know, a lot of times you just kind of have to go with what works for a little bit, even if you don't know why and know that it's going to kind of run out <laughs> eventually and you got to find another audience that works. So constantly chasing the, yeah, it's a little frustrating. Yeah. You do feel like you're chasing, but, um, it scales. Right. Well, what's your, what's your routine today then? Or maybe, maybe we have today, since you're at this scale that, that is probably uh, not necessarily relatable to a lot of listeners, but like early on, what was your routine as a company or maybe whoever's running the ads? Like, how did you guys decide what kind of ads to set up, what kind of campaigns to set up and test? I mean, I think the same philosophy applies all the time. I mean, you, first of all, it starts with great creative. And creative is an area that I think a lot of people feel unwilling to invest in because it's not, you know, you're not buying an eyeball when you, uh, you know, pay for a photography or a video. But the truth is, the lesson we learned early, you know, maybe too late because we 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 didn't we were really cheap on creative early on, um, and we you know later started investing pretty heavily into it. Was that that a good creative will multiply the effectiveness of any ad? So you end up you know it ends up paying for itself really easily. So have creative kind of lined up. Um, you know, have your creative be, have been created through hypotheses, um, you know, meaning if you think your customer looks a certain way or does a certain thing, then, you know, make sure that your creative uh, speaks to that, if not includes it directly. Um, and then kind of plan the creative around. That's what we would do. We would say, all right, we're going to focus on this product. We're going to line up these creative. We're going to have, uh, we would think about value propositions. We would think about the different types of copy that you could include in ads um, which is part of creative, but there was also, we were pretty scientific about it. We would create Excel files with, um, let's, let's have an ad, ad be attribute based means, meaning we would talk about specific aspects of the product that we think would appeal to people. Uh, let's have a product be value proposition based, which is, Hey, good value for money or, um, more comfortable than other products out there. Um, and then we would talk about, just kind of brand language, you know, what are, what are some attitude kind of copy and any, you know, overall we would, we would kind of have a matrix of copy images and then targeting audience targeting. And we would just every week, I think we would pretty much line up. I think we kind of agreed early on to two or three hypotheses a week. And, you know, we, we early on, we had an, uh, a small kind of boutique agency helping us, ideate some of these and execute some of the campaigns since we hadn't, we didn't have a lot of experience with Facebook early on. So that was the primary focus of ours. And, you know, we just iterate from that. I think today, you know, we've got a, a eight person internal marketing team now and, you know, they don't, what they do today is not so different from that. It's just across more channels, across more creative types. It's with a little more, you know, modeling built in and a little more cross pollination, thinking but you know honestly it's the same thing i mean we're we're we make stuff we take pictures of it <laughs> we take videos of it we write copy for it we put ads out there if they're display ads or uh, copy ads or facebook ads and you know that's how we get a lot of our traffic right is that where you always start a, a hypothesis yeah, I, I think it pays to be hypothesis driven. It's it's hard not to be right. It would be hard to create an ad without, um, you know, having an idea of why it would work. Uh, but I think it's also I think as you grow, you need to be more comfortable stretching your hypotheses a little bit. 
um, because you, I think what's, what will naturally happen for any good, for any company that has product market fit, the, your first wave of customers are going to likely be the people that just get it right off the bat. Like you made something that they were already buying maybe, and yours is better or lower price for the same quality. And those people are going to come first. And for those people, honestly, selling to them, advertising is kind of straightforward. It's, hey, guys, here's what our product is. Here's the price. Do you want it? <laughs> and um, you know, a lot of them will say yes. Uh, it, it gets harder with each wave of customers. So you need to, therefore, be willing to stretch your hypotheses a little bit. You, you, you might find customer groups that you didn't expect so you have to be willing to test hypotheses that maybe you don't feel very great about. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we've ever had an advertisement out there or a strategy for that matter. If it was like a, a radio campaign or, or what have you that didn't have a clear hypothesis at first or a clear, you know, measure of success or a reason for doing it. We definitely, we never spend money <laughs> unless we, are really, you know, and we're skeptical about this. We, 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 we don't spend money unless we really think it could work. Right. How far do you, do you, can you recall how far you're able to scale the business just by going after those kind of low hanging fruit customers? Uh, I would say high seven figures. Um, maybe even, maybe even eight, maybe even eight figures, but we, that only because we, I mean, the market's pretty big for our product. But yeah, you know, it's a, there's a smattering of of kind of call it stage two and three customers in there, you know, later adopters of course, uh, because you know it, it took us a little while to get to that scale. So along that way, some people may have heard been hearing about us for a year and a half, and they may not have been ready to purchase in November 2015. But maybe it took them to December 2016 to realize, hey guys, I've 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 heard enough about it. I had enough people in my network. You know, I'm not an early adopter, but um, I'm in. Uh, so it's it's not a perfect, it's not you know it's not all your first wave and then your second wave and then your third wave. Uh, right. But yeah, I think that low hanging fruit. There's there's we've found there, and I don't know what it's like for anyone else really to be honest. I mean, we've talked to enough brands that we think this is generally true, but certainly not universally true. Is that most marketing channels, most sales channels, uh, even if it's outside of online, tend to have call it a honeymoon phase, uh, similar to opening like a really good restaurant. There'll be a really good month, the first month, and then it'll maybe taper off and then it'll build on, build on itself over time. I think that's the same. It works the same with marketing channels in many ways, although it's unclear how much they're going to build over time later nowadays, because, you know, everyone else is, you know, more and more people are advertising every year. So naturally the, the, the cost of advertising is, is rising, which I think is probably, a pretty universal truth right now, unfortunately, for advertisers. Mm -hmm. And because you pay so much so close, close attention to the campaigns that you are running, how do you make the decision on whether you should scale up a particular campaign or an ad versus turning it off? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent results. I mean, if if we're not getting the dollar purchases, we don't do it. We're we've we're still even at, even now, and <clears throat> I mean, we're not. We there's we've got plenty of room to grow. Uh, I think later we may change this, but still we're we're very much purchase oriented. We're not running ads just to get likes or to get impressions or to get, um, you know, call it brand awareness. <clears throat> we don't really focus on that now, and there's nothing against increasing brand awareness. We just we you know 
generally ads that increase brand awareness don't pay themselves off as quickly. And we've always been focused on being capital efficient. And so pretty easy. If an, if an ad isn't driving purchases, then, you know, we, we have a threshold, you know, we've, we've, we've got indicators and, and rules that we've established. Uh, but you know, you don't, you don't keep, if, if you were playing poker <laughs> and you've lost 10 times in a row, yeah, maybe it's the gambler's fallacy to, to fold. Um, but at the same time, you've only got so much money to lose probably. So maybe you should go to a different table. <laughs> well, how, how, how do you know how much time or how much of the budget you should allot for a test before you can make that decision? You have to, that, that's something you just have to decide yourself based on your tolerance, um, you know, budget wise. And, uh, but it needs to be informed by past results. You know, for us, we've got, a, again, we've got a pretty high price point product. When, when we first started, our average order value was around 220 It's higher now because we've introduced a lot of higher price point products, but it was around 220 And, um, you know, uh, you need to spend more uh, to get a $220 purchase than you do to get a $10, you know, widget purchase. So, you should think about it maybe as a multiple of your average order value and your profit and and then kind of scale from there. Um, I remember we would get we would get frustrated early on. Hey, we spent a hundred dollars on this ad and like nothing's happening, like no purchases yet. It's like, well, actually if we had spent a hundred dollars and we got a purchase, that would be pretty good. <laughs> like um, so we you just have to you gotta kind of you know, right size uh, you're thinking a little bit according to your brand. And, and then also I would look at data and, um, and this is the kind of stuff that's useful that you don't have when you're starting on day one, but you know, once you're on day 30 or day 60 or day 600, you have a lot of this data, which is how off, how long does it usually take between, you know, kind of first touch and last touch to get a purchase, uh, how many, you know, what's the frequency, how many different channels are they seeing advertisement? Like you'll start to learn those things and then you should adjust your budget accordingly. Right. If, if it takes more than, if it takes two weeks on average for someone to purchase, then you should probably be willing to run your only advertising campaign you have for two weeks or more. Right. Um, mm. uh, so there's a, there's, you know, little basic learnings like that, I would say, but it's going to be different for every business. Right. I mean, uh, some channels are really good for some businesses and some channels are terrible for other businesses. And, um, you know, I think one of the, we, we got a little, I would think about that if I were starting a business today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick a low average order value business. Maybe, um, not to say you can't succeed with a low average order value business. You just need to have a slightly different strategy. You can't, you know, rely maybe on, if you want to be profitable on your first purchase, you can't rely on channels that on average will be 50 to a hundred dollars, uh, to, you know, a CPA. So, um, you know, we, you know, maybe unintentionally picked uh, a category that had a slightly higher AOV, which allowed us a bit more flexibility in which channels we would, you know, spend money on. That's a great point. So thank you so much, Paul. So tecovas.com, T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com is the website. What's, uh, what's next for the brand? Where do you guys want to focus your attention on over the next year? Yeah. Um, so a lot of exciting things in our pipeline. We launched our first non-footwear category this year. We've got bags and accessories and more coming out this fall, which is really exciting. It's been successful. Um, we're launching another category after that, and then we're launching a store next year and possibly more. So we've, we've, we're, we're on our way to becoming an omni-channel brand, <laughs> which is our goal. And 
yeah, it's going to be hard, but we're really excited about it. Yeah, certainly exciting times. Again, thank you so much for your time, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.